welcome to the Black Light Roundtable. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Roundtable is a space that is used for unheard voices of criminal and social justice issues that many face in America today. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Welcome, Black Light audience. Glad you are tuning in for another episode. Today, y'all, I want to speak about CPS to prison pipeline. And that is Child Protective Services to prison pipeline. I don't think that that topic is touched on a lot. Um, and a lot of people and families I'm going to say a lot of children and families are suffering from this overlay. So, without further ado, y'all, y'all know I like my data. Um, You know, I always like to spit facts. Um, So, I'm just going to throw y'all some data that I looked up myself um, through Juvenile Law Center. And you can feel free to uh, check it out yourself at jlc.org. Shout out to the Juvenile Law Center for this data. It says, y'all, youth placed in group homes are 2.5 more likely to get involved in the justice system. 90% of youth with five or more foster placements will enter the justice system. Yeah. According to the latest data, there is 437,000 children in America foster care system that will face disproportionate risk of being incarcerated. I just want to go back to that number, y'all. That is a large number of our babies that is exposed to this nasty carceral system. I can't. That's just... To know that so many children are being exposed to a system that is so inhumane at such a young age just seems it's just an automatic setup y'all for failure like we have to stop giving these systems our people they don't care nothing about our communities and keeping them together and keeping our villages together because over the years y'all they have destroyed our villages That's why our children are in the carceral system. That's why our loved ones are in the carceral system. Some of them have been in juvenile all the way up until they're able to go to adult facilities and are still in adult facilities, y'all, with life without parole and got that as a baby. When are we going to stop letting the government control our human bodies. I'm just saying. I'm going to give you some more data. And this comes from law at Georgetown 
education. Y'all know Georgetown is a, is a major university. And they hit on a very good point, y'all. A very good point. The increasing incarceration of women is driving even more children into the linked foster care and carceral system. Women are the fastest growing incarcerated population, which has a big impact on the children in foster status. Now, fellas, please don't take offense to what I'm about to say because this is not me bashing. This is actual data. 90% of children remain with their mother when their father is incarcerated. Only 25% of children live with their father when their mother is incarcerated. Though another 50% live with a grandmother or grandparent. So just listening to that data, we know that there's always been a high number of men incarcerated, right? So now if we start incarcerating the women, we are about to have a lot of parentless, parentless children that will end up in child protective services. We have got to start building those villages back that we had. Yes, my age probably does show. But back in my day, we had a village. My grandmother was a part of that village, my great-grandmother. She would watch people's children, single mothers, parents. You know, if they just need a night by themselves to go out, she would watch the baby. She would feed the children and go right on home, send them right on back home to their parents whenever they done, done whatever they had to do. And that was it. She, they didn't have to worry about trying to pay for daycare, trying to find a nanny. Like, y'all, we've let them tear that down. And we've let them place, replace our villages with carceral system. The carceral system, y'all. And I want people to understand, nobody is perfect. Everybody's human. Everybody makes mistakes. Okay? Not saying people can be out here committing crimes and there be no type of repercussions. Not saying that. But people don't just wake up. A lot of people don't just wake up and say, hey, I want to go and commit a crime. Especially youngins, like babies. You know, we're hearing more and more children going in schools with guns and shooting one another, and, and the, the age that they're being shot is getting younger and younger. But these children do not wake up and say, hey, let me go shoot somebody today. These children are hurting. These children have past trauma. They have environmental trauma. They have institutional trauma because sometimes school can be an institution, y'all. Come on now. Come on. They have childhood trauma. Instead of fixing the trauma, which can all be done, a lot of it can be done on your own because your trauma is trapped in your body. So breathing and mindfulness and things of that nature can release trauma. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we teaching the kid how to kid teaching the kids how to unpack their emotions? 
because that's all it is. They don't know how to unpack their emotions. They don't know how to feel. Things are not how they used to be. We were in a pandemic for two and a half, almost three years. And we're going through inflation right now. So it is so many different things that these children have to be faced with. And instead of us making and creating spaces in our communities to help our communities, to help one another, we are criminalizing it, y'all. Criminalizing people who have mental health situations. We are throwing them in jail. We are throwing them in prison. And we are doing that. Why? Because they say they have no mental health beds. Ridiculous. Children don't have counselors at school like that. I had counselor at my school. There was a situation, counselor would call us down to her office for us to talk it out, especially if she heard about it. I don't, I don't know if that is in our schools. You know, like it needs to be more restorative and not criminal, especially when it comes to the babies. I just, I, I need for y'all to really sit down and unpack all of that. Just think, sit down and think about these babies. I've seen for my own eyes, because I know a few people that were foster parents. I've seen for my own eyes, and not all foster parents are bad. They're not. You have a lot of good ones. You have a lot of good ones that do it from their heart. But there are those ones that do it for whatever reason it is. It ain't for the best of the child or because, you know, they want to do it because, you know, they want to help a child out because they don't have a... F Listen, there, there are people that CPS is allowing, instead of them keeping check on these children, even after they have been adopted out, I still feel like it should be a life thing. That you should always check in and make sure everything is okay. Just because they are adopted out, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they are okay. But I have seen where they have taken the child for whatever reason, whether it was a doctor reporting stuff. That's another conversation for another day. As far as medical reporting, you know, situations like that to... Anyway, or, you know, whether somebody else calls or whatever. But I've seen where CPS have taken children out of the home, not really have any true facts or documentation. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. We know that sometimes stuff can be padded up and have taken them out of the home, placed them in foster care. And let me remind you, when you're in foster care, there's nothing permanent about foster care. You are from place to place to place, home to home to home. On top of, they will still let you visit with your parent. So for one, let's think about this from a mental aspect. Because y'all know I'm a big mental health advocate. How is that remotely even healthy for any child that is going through developmental, social, emotional changes? Not to have somewhere stable. Not to feel like they are loved by one family, but have to go for multiple. Praying, hoping, hoping and hoping that they are adopted by a forever family. 
And even sometimes when they're adopted by a forever family, that forever family is not the forever family that that child needs. And I just want y'all to understand that because I don't know if y'all have heard about this case. It's a national case of these two boys named Orin and Orson, which that's not their original name. Um, They were taken from their mother. She did. And I've seen this on a lot of cases. The parents will do exactly everything that DSS tells them to do to be able to get their kids back. And they do it. But guess what? DSS does not give them children back. They will have them kids go to a totally different family. Now, Orrin and Orson was from Texas. They let a family in California adopt them. And they end up missing not too long after they adopted them. I could go down the list of people that have harmed their foster or adoptive child. Okay? So, that is not healthy. We have to do more about keeping the children in the home. Why is it not, let's see... Let's let's get down to the nitty-gritty and see what's going on in this home. Is it the fact that they need sustainable living, sustainable housing that is safe, that everything is working in the house? Is it that they need nutritionist food, that they don't live in a food desert? Because where I live at, we have plenty of those, especially in the disproportionate areas. Is it that they're not making enough at their job? but they are busting their tails Monday through Friday, Monday through Sunday, however many days they work, 12 hours, 8 hours, and still is not able to provide for their family, so they have to go and do extra other curricular activities that was basically forced here by, we know who, we're not going to get into that, Ronald Reagan. Anyway, um, you know, like, why why are we criminalizing things that we've designed to tear down families and communities that, that has been designed by these systems to continuously tear down communities? Yeah, we've let them replace our villages. <laughs> you know, like, I just, I can't, like, I... I see so many children suffering. Like, they're either suffering because... They have been taken from home or they're suffering because the parent or the parents have been taken from the home. Y'all, this has to end. We have to take back our communities. We have to take back our people, our children, our elderly, our middle-aged, which are all incarcerated. And in the land of the free, as they say, there should be nobody, and I mean absolutely nobody, that should be impoverished, impoverished, or unstable. And I know you're going to be like, oh, I hear people like, oh, well, people are lazy. How do you know they're lazy? How do you know that? I know plenty of people that work their tails off and been work their tails off and still have to struggle. Even before inflation. 
Because they're not getting paid enough. Why? Because they are of a certain race or color. So we're not going to act like that's not out there. People always want to act like that's not a thing. That's the thing. It's a huge thing. So instead of calling somebody lazy, why don't we try to help? Help. Help one another. Help your neighbor. That's what it needs to be about. Help your neighbor. It's what it was about years ago. Helping your neighbor. Helping the people in your community. So, y'all, I hope that y'all really take this conversation and think about these babies that's being thrown in a carceral system and given, you know, life without parole. Like I said, nobody wakes up and say, hey, I want to go shoot somebody today, especially not babies. And as we're seeing, they're getting younger and younger and younger they're carrying weapons at a very young age. They're shooting one another like it ain't nothing. They're in these made-up gangs or gangs or whatever. It's because they don't have what they need at home. It's because you have a system that is not about keeping children at home and making sure that they grow emotionally, socially, mentally, physically, emotionally. It's not about those things anymore. It's about how much money can I make off this child? Because I don't want y'all to think that CPS does not get any money off these children. They get their checks, y'all. Like if, if they have, if a child has a disability and they don't have a parent, that money goes to CPS. Yes. And if you have a child, if you are fostering a child that has behavioral issues, you get more money. So, yeah, I mean, something's got to change, y'all, and it's only up to us. Only we can change these things. But you got to change it collectively, because if you ain't working collectively, you ain't working for nothing. So, I'm going to stop my rant right now. I am going to let y'all hear a story of somebody that is what I call a product of the system. Y'all stay tuned. My name is Louis Tony. I'm currently incarcerated in the Caswell Correctional Facility. Um, currently incarcerated for uh, first degree murder, first degree burglary, robbery with a dangerous weapon, and uh, first degree kidnapping. I was previously sentenced to life possibility of parole and um, that's pretty much what my convictions are. How long have you been incarcerated? Uh, I've been incarcerated for 15 years. How did you become a product of the system? Well, um, that's a tricky question because I've been a product of the system for a long time. If we're going back to when I was a child, you know, I was put in the system at three years old in New York, and I pretty much grew up in the system, but how I got incarcerated in, in this particular incident, you know, that's a whole other story. Um, you know? Right. So which, which, which one were you referring to in particular? Just in general. I mean, if you want to speak on the CPS, the prison pipeline, because I, a lot of people don't know, like they are familiar with the school to prison pipeline. 
But a lot of people don't understand that a lot of children go are in prison and in jail a lot earlier when they are in a foster care. Right. Well, pretty much, I pretty much grew up in that whole system. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Judge Judy. She's kind of famous now, but back in the day, she was a family court judge. Uh, she took all my mother's rights away. My mother was, you know, uh, pretty much strung out on drugs and, you know, dealing with that struggle. So me, my little brother, my sister got taken away, put in the system. So I grew up in foster home, group homes, you know, you name it. Been through hell and back dealing with, you know, that whole system. Uh, my stepdad, God rest his soul, got us out of the system. Uh, 
got to be within 18 months of going home. It's just like, there's so many stipulations for guys who got life sentences and guys who are in hell who've been down for 15. The only thing you could possibly take is a GED class and maybe, and maybe you could take, uh, you know, thinking for a change. And these classes are not established or in place to help rehabilitate you. Right. They're yeah. there to say that they got something for y'all to do, but nothing that really rehabilitates and help people to be productive citizens if they are to come home. Where you at. Yeah. That really depends on where you at because, you know, in close custody where, you know, most of these prisons is at, a lot of these guys are getting killed in there, you know, there's nothing going on in there. They don't even have school for, for the life of, of, you know, being incarcerated in some of those spots. And then here I am, I'm in like a medium camp now where the only thing they really have here is GED classes. They have wells in these other, um, um, like, um, they have small tools welded, um, and I think they have some type of GED classes, some other class they teach them, but you got to be within a certain amount of time of going home to even have that opportunity to take up on those, those courses. So right. it really becomes irrelevant. You know what I'm saying? There's really nothing in place. Uh, you know, medical care is trash. Everything is, is established here is, is crazy. And then you got, this is another thing that I don't think people pay attention to, but, you know, we pay taxes, believe it or not. Um, when we go to the store and we want to buy a, a Colgate toothpaste, they cost three $3 and some change plus tax. Yet we only making... Uh, one of these jobs might pay you forty cents a day. You might make two dollars and you know eighty cents that week. Seven days you might make two dollars and eighty cents. Meaning you can't even go to the store and buy that cold in toothpaste. You can't do nothing. And that's four weeks worth. Right. No, right. And that's what I was doing. Telling my right. husband extremely high. Yeah. that you know the amount of the amount that it takes to daily incarcerate somebody is a hundred to one hundred and twenty to one hundred and thirty dollars a day, twenty nine thousand to thirty thirty thousand dollars a year for one person. So you mean to tell me that you're basically paying more money to hold somebody than you're getting free labor out of them? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So. But yeah, let's switch gears real quick. Um, I want to ask you. I know you have some medical issues that you've dealt with. Um, what is medical like in prison? Oh man, it's 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 like the bottom of the bottom, believe it or not. You would think that you would get a whole lot better medical care, but for example, I was playing basketball, I tore my ACL in my left knee. I didn't know at the time it was a torn ACL, but when I went to medical he gave me some ibuprofen, told me it was a simple sprain, I'll be good in a week. A week later I tore it again, I mean I injured it again. So went back, uh, got pretty much the same treatment. They gave me an uh, a x-ray. The x-ray didn't show nothing. And the whole time the doctor knew that something was really wrong. But they wanted to avoid giving me an MAR, uh, MRI. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. they, they wanted to avoid giving me an MRI so bad that they was willing to continue to put it off and put it off and put it off until it came to a point where I was re-injured again. By the time I actually got to see an outside doctor, 
and I actually got to see some real medical attention. I had to get my whole left knee reconstructed. I had a torn ACL, a torn meniscus, and a torn cartilage in my left knee from re-injuring it two, three times prior to the first time it got injured. So what was the response time? Oh, man, we talking. After the first time I injured it, maybe two months. After the second injury, maybe another. You know, it's, it's very, very time-consuming. You know, they'll schedule you to see the, um, to get an uh, x-ray. Once the x-rays come back and the doctors see you, you know, they pretty much drag it out. As long as I didn't get an MRI. Uh, I mean, I didn't, get, I didn't get an MRI on my knee until maybe three to five months after I injured it the first time. Oh, wow. That's how long they took them to even give me an MRI. And then once I got the MRI, it probably took another four or five months before I can even get in position to get surgery. I had to get my whole left knee reconstructed. Uh, once I finally got the surgery done, you know, I couldn't walk. Um, they didn't, they gave me uh, like some kind of rehab. Mm -hmm. You know, they signed you up for rehab. But they're so cheap with the rehab Instead of giving it to me, knowing that I just tore my, my whole left knee up and I had to pretty much relearn how to walk mm -hmm. and do all of those things again, you would think I would need, you know, that kind of treatment, you know, three, four, five times out of the week. No, they want to give it to you once, maybe two times out of the week. That's three times a week. When you first have yeah. surgery, I used to work in a physical therapy office. You have to come in three times a week. Well, you know, you gotta really, really push the issue. They don't want to. They don't want to pay that money. It costs. Right. The cost for them to, to get for the MRIs. The cost for the physical therapy. Which, in fact, you would think that that should be a first and top priority. But it's not, man. It's it's very, very bad, man. The medical attention, the the timing, you know, to respond to these medical issues are bad. And every time you go to medical, you gotta pay for it. Five dollars to seven dollars. Every time you file a medical emergency, they're gonna charge you seven dollars. And their first response or their first, you know, way of dealing with it is, hey, here goes some ibuprofen. <laughs> That's their favorite. Their favorite thing, right? Well, I got one last question before the time right now. We had thirteen minutes. What? What? So, when writing a grievance, what is? The turnaround time and what was your result when you wrote a medical grievance? Well, when you put me file a grievance, okay, the response time I can't really say as far because I don't know what process they go through as far as holding it. But we file a grievance, they'll come back, um, ask us do we want to continue the process for whatever. You have sixty seconds remaining. I'm gonna give or take maybe, you know weeks, months maybe, within getting your first response back from the grievance, then it has to go a further step. But once it gets to around Raleigh, maybe that's about, you know, three, anywhere between three to five months. And it get results or is it just, you know, they always say they don't find any claims of support, they what always, you're saying? They always, they always, have 30 seconds remaining. They always support the, the officers. They don't never give you any kind of results. Once you come back from rally or anything. That's what yeah, I, I I've never really seen a grievance go through a full process and actually 
make it unless they had an attorney. Yeah. Right. Well, I appreciate you so much uh, for doing this interview. Thank you. Welcome back, Black Light audience. I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Mr. Cody. I know I did. You know, it just, I'm sure that that was not easy for him to share that intimate story about his childhood with everybody on the show and everybody that's listening. I mean, because that's, that's a hard thing to tell the world, you know what I mean? And just hearing Judge Judy, hearing her name. And hearing her several times on her show, Judge Judy show, gloat about being a family judge, knowing that, you know, she has tore several people and families' lives apart. Like, and who gloats about that? Instead of ensuring that these homes had the correct resources that they needed so that the children are able to thrive socially, socially, emotionally, physically. I don't get it. Like, that is nothing to glorify about. Like, I would never glorify about taking a child from a home and placing them in a system that I know will place them from home to home to home or place them in a group home where they have a chance of being abused physically, Sexually, emotionally, I know a kid that that happened to. And it wasn't because, you know, his his mom couldn't, or he was taken from CPS. It was, you know, he had some behavioral issues and mom thought that was the way to go. And, you know, she ended up regretting it because she heard of what happened to him while he was in there. So this is what I'm saying, y'all. Like, we have to do better by our children. We have to protect them because they are the future. Like we can't be exposing them to these heinous systems that aren't there to better them as a person. That's only there to tear them down and start tearing them down even before they are able to mentally developed to understand anything about life y'all so i want y'all to sit with that again thank you mr floyd cody shout out to lovely lovely emancipate my team does wonders y'all can't thank them enough for everything that they've done so thank you again for tuning in i hope you enjoyed today's show your host sierra cobb take care